whatever scandal you want to bring up, you want to bring up the admission scandal, you right. want to bring up academic fraud, you want to bring up gigantic facility, keep up with the Joneses, $150 million budgets, right? Whatever the problem is, we did that. Athletic directors did that. College presidents did that. We allowed our culture to drive that bus, and we have mm. to take it back. We have to take it back. All the escalation that's going on, which is then driving out of whack coaches' salaries and is driving all this competitive pressure, is giving competition a bad name. Back to, you win, great, you win. The next moment, it doesn't matter anymore. And everything that goes into it is what does matter. Right. So presidents, athletic directors, we have lost our way. That's Betsy Mitchell, the first female director of athletics at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. I'm John Moffat, and welcome to my podcast, Sports Life Balance. Long before Betsy was overseeing 16 varsity sports at Caltech, she was a swimmer at the University of Texas and won nine individual and three team NC2A Division I championships. Betsy represented the U.S. in two consecutive Olympic Games, held the world record in the 200 backstroke, and is an Olympic gold and silver medalist. Today, Betsy is a passionate advocate for women in sports, a staunch believer in the student-athlete ideal, and an outspoken critic of the current state of collegiate athletics in America. Betsy's philosophies will challenge your conventional wisdom for sure, and I think you'll come away with a fresh perspective about how academic and athletic greatness is created inside one of the most prestigious science and technology institutions in the world. Betsy, thank you so much for joining me here today for my podcast, Sports Life Balance. The, the title of your podcast is just exactly how I live my life. And I, I would think about that the other day. Um, the, if I were going to say the one thing that I've learned through sport as a younger person um, and continue to learn in my professional life, it would be that it provides balance, that balance is required in order to succeed, um, that, that it's a central concept to um, participation, achievement, um, satisfaction, and success. And those are different things. You know, I talk with our staff all the time about being satisfied and also being successful and the balance, the, the yin and yang of those things. So um, I just, I love it. I love it. Oh, good, good. So um, we have a lot to talk about. So Great. I'm really excited. So let's dive right in. Let's start at the beginning. Tell me about um, Little Betsy before <laughs> swimming, where you live, kind of what your upbringing was like. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, little, little Betsy is very much the same as Big Betsy. Um, I, 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 feel, I feel really close to my, my child self. I, I, you said grown up, and I guess I would start by saying I, I hope I'm not grown up. Um, I, I try to bring that fresh learner's perspective to everything that I do. But um, I grew up in Marietta, Ohio, a very rural Appalachian town in the southeast corner of Ohio. Um, you know, little, little Betsy pre-swimming really wanted to be a t-ball player, mm. and I didn't get the opportunity to do that. It was 1972, mm -hmm. and this is my story of how I got involved in swimming, was I was turned away from t-ball. I went with my brother and his friends to play, and the mom at the desk said, 
little girls don't play t-ball you can't do that so my dad put me back in the car and said well we'll find something for you to do this summer you know Mm -hmm. and uh we were driving home and there was the sign at the y ymca and it said Mm -hmm. summer swim team Mm -hmm. my dad's like you know how to swim let's go so we went and that was that was really how i found competitive swimming you know well and so right from the start right from when you were a little girl you realized that there was just blatant sexism and there weren't equal opportunities and it was that equal opportunity that sort of like shoved you into another lane so to speak right absolutely Um, and um so did you it, was it at the time? Did it did it kind of sting, or is it something that that sort of like throughout your career as a female athlete, it really started to you started to understand it all better? Well, I, I was confused more than anything, right? When the T-ball mom said right. you can't, no, Betsy, the boys play this, and I was just mostly confused because I had done everything with them, um, and you know, I've 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 never really been a Band, band, wagon leader, parade leader, jump up and down. But certainly having that story be the story that I tell has resonated with me at various moments of my career. Like when, when you become the first female athletic director, right, which has happened to me four times now, right, two mm-hmm. in high school and mm-hmm. two in colleges. Much like Muffet McGraw said, I'm really ready for that to be over. Like, that's just mm, sort of right. silly now, right? Like, so it sort of, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying it if It impacts me more now than it did then. Mm-hmm. I would say also, though, that, that part of, I tell that story frequently because the young men and women that I work with now and have worked with really for the last 10 or 15 years, they don't get it, and that's a good thing, and it's also a bad thing, right? So... Young women today don't really don't think there's anything that they can't do, and so they're really less aware mm-hmm. of historical significance of some of these things that have played out in my life, right? right? Um, just just the time period that that it has been my life, and so you have to you have to tread a thin line between educating them, right, both men and mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. about those things, and just being really glad that they don't really it's not really in their consciousness. Right, like there's a, several generations of young women came up, and it was really in our consciousness. Right. And now you kind of have to draw their attention to it if you're either writing a wrong or addressing something mm-hmm. or describing a why behind a scenario, and then they get it, you know. But they they don't, they're not, um, they're blissfully not as aware. Right. We'll talk about some of these topics, um, you know, a, a, a little bit later. But um, I want to go back to you as 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 a youth and an, and as an athlete. Um, you left home. You left Ohio, um, and and to to go to high school, didn't you? For the last two years of high school, okay. right? I, I um, so our our school system was failing in the late seventies. It was going to go on strike. My mom was the president of our local school board, and so she sort of knew it wasn't going to be good, right? Mm-hmm. In my soft, sophomore, freshman, sophomore year in high school, and so that also was when I was becoming um, a lot better um, at swimming. And um, I didn't know the world outside of Marietta or southeastern Ohio, West Virginia, where I would travel to meets. And, you know, it was a huge sacrifice for my parents to mm-hmm. let me go away or even put that out there And because it wasn't my idea. Mm-hmm. It was really my parents just thinking, probably time for her to fly. So they took me to 
Mercersburg Academy and a couple of others, Bowles, I think, in Florida and maybe Germantown further east in, in Pennsylvania. And anyway, um, I, I went away for my junior and senior year. Most people think of prep school and think, oh, they send the mm-hmm. bad kids there or right parents who are terrible. They don't want to parent their kids. Like, and that was just couldn't be further from the truth for us. Mm-hmm. It, was, um, it was a little weird mm-hmm. for me. Um, I went away before my older brother went away, you know, just sort yeah. of the family dynamic. But it was absolutely the right the right thing to do. It was, it's a great school. Mm-hmm. There's a good swim team there. They have uh, a really good balance, right? We didn't train in the mornings. We just worked out really hard once a day. And so it really, really opened my eyes to what, what the world could be. Right. Yeah. And I, I believe you've said that it's also the place where you really started realizing that you were good. Yeah, so um, the coach there, John Tremblay, who went on from Mercersburg to um, be the coach, head coach at Tennessee, uh, his alma mater for quite some time, he was the first person who really said, "Look, you're you're going to be an Olympian. It's just a matter of whether you want to do it in '84 or '88." Did that seem outlandish to you? Um, yeah, it was the spring of 81 or 82, and I was like, oh, this guy's weird, you know, and what's he talking about? Because it, it really never occurred to me. The Olympics truly were on your horizon. When, when was it just something that, you, that was extremely tangible and not just a goal and a dream? I didn't grow up dreaming to be an Olympian. Hmm. I, I, it was not something in my lens. I didn't. I didn't spend my time watching TV. I lived in a very small, out-of-the-way place. It, make, it makes it sound like I was, you know, barefoot in a log cabin, but it really just was not in my horizon. I, you know, I went to swim practice. I loved it. I love mm-hmm. my friends. I like mm-hmm. my coach. I like working hard. And then that was it. You know, I, it was just like the thing I did. Um, so it wasn't. It wasn't that it was a dream for me. Mm. Um, so I can answer the question: When did it become a goal? And, hmm. you know, um, it became a goal probably my senior year in high school. Right. Um, I graduated from high school in 1983, and I went off to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Right. And um, I was sort of winning national events at that point, right? I won the international meet in January, and I won the U.S. Open in December, and there were like these sort of mid-major international meets and I was winning and getting second and you know really competing and that's when it became a goal well um you mentioned UNC and there was um someone who we both know um sort of the grand dam of uh backstroke at the time a woman named Sue Walsh um and so how much did Sue and her prowess and backstroke have to do with you uh, attending UNC I believe she would have been a senior yep right yeah so so uh Sue was absolutely the, the reigning reigning backstroke champion. Um, and I remember thinking, well, that would be great. You know, I could learn from her and I could push her. And, um, and the methods of that coach at that time and I just, we just didn't click. Um, tell me a little bit about how you were dealing with adversity at that point. I mean, freshman year in college, you're 18 years old you don't have all the coping skills of an adult but yet you're you're faced with some really adult decisions weren't you sure um you know i i had i I perhaps had a a small leg up in that one because you know i went away from home i was still 15 years old Mm -hmm. and i i was navigating with certainly 
kind, caring adults who were keeping me safe at prep school, right? But I wasn't there in a daily interaction with my parent. There's no computers, no email, mm-hmm. no text, mm-hmm. no cell phone, right? So I, I was a little more used to having adult relationships with people other than my parents okay. when, I, when I was a freshman in, in, right. in, in college. But all the things that I tried didn't work. So talking to the coach about what was or wasn't working, right, um, not liking that they were pushing me into a business major because I was a, a smart, capable young woman in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't, I don't care. I want to be in education. I want to be mm-hmm. a, a coach. I want to be an athletic director. I, wanna, you know, I, wanna, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to give back in that way. I wow. knew that, and I knew that my first year, and they were pushing me. Well, here, take this. Now, this is a funny story given the 30 years that have ensued, but here, take this business math class. <laughs> well, well, for why I can balance my checkbook why would I do that well you know we're going to pick your classes for you and even and I just that didn't appeal to me you mm-hmm. know it didn't just didn't appeal to me I understand I understand it as a you know I understand it but so there were the, all these things happening and 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 still I was getting better in the water right right and I was so that's more about me than it is about my coach and I learned that I learned that mm. it was very empowering right that, right this is my thing. It always has been. Don't let something else get in the way of that, right? Because this was after I had sort of set my goal. Mm-hmm. So that brought me to the decision to the Monday after NCAAs my freshman year. And we did very well. Um, I think I got maybe second or third as a, as a freshman. And anyway, Monday after NCAAs, we flew back to Chapel Hill and I packed my car and I left. Oh, my gosh. Because this was the spring of 1984. Right. So you're asking me how I dealt with adversity. And I would say, short story, I tried to communicate. Mm. I looked inward. I had confidence in myself to Mm -hmm. do what was felt right for me. Mm -hmm. And then at the right moment, sort of an appropriate pause point, I'm like, yep, this isn't for me anymore. And if I want to make that team in three months, I better get someplace that I'm going to get a lot more out of it. So I called my mom. I said, I'm coming home. And she said, oh. That's that's fantastic. Oh, is it spring break? You know, and and when when are you coming? And when are we going back? And I'm like, no, no, I'm I'm coming home. And so I I went home for about a week, and mm-hmm. then I went to Cincinnati to to just train full time. So you went to Cincinnati from there, All right? Right, right. The, the Pepsi Marlins, which, which is where I had swum some summers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I dealt with adversity, which is try to understand it, try to work through it, and then mm-hmm. ultimately pick up and make a change when need be something still carries on to today that's it absolutely you know my parents were instrumental in my swimming and in my childhood and in my life and I'm really lucky Um, I'm really lucky but they didn't hit me over the head with these things but this is one thing that my father said for sure we're not going to evaluate in the middle of something you know you, you get you get through the whatever and then you evaluate, and then you do, right. right? And so this had come through various challenges in middle school about, you know, well, I don't want to be at practice. I want to go to the dance, right? Or whatever those kinds of Inevitable things. Inevitable conflicts. Right, and, yeah. and those are the, but those are the learning points, right? Mm-hmm. And so as parents, for them to say, no, this is not the appropriate time to evaluate. Not make my choice for me, mm-hmm. right? I can go to the dance. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But then you have to be the one to tell your coach. We're not going to do that for you right right? you have to own your decisions basically so that served me well in this case right didn't I didn't immediately run tail and leave college the first three weeks when I was like wait a minute 
this isn't what I thought it was going to be, and mm-hmm. he's really different now. And when's appropriate? Let's get through a season. Let's give it a try. And no, it's still not working out. Yeah, we're out. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, I wanted to bring up Sue Walsh one last time sure. because she was um, she she was a nineteen eighty um, Olympian in swimming. She made of yours. Yeah, teammate yeah. of mine, and um, she didn't make it. Nope. She missed by a hundredth of a second. She was third. What, what kind of? What, how did that shift your perspective when you realized somebody that you actually knew really well and somebody who was a former teammate of yours was like just absolutely, um, like just heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. Yeah. Um, in the moment, I didn't. In, yeah. in, in the moment, I didn't think about it. That's no, fair enough, though. I didn't. I didn't think about it. Um, I, I won trials. I got to go. Um, Teresa Andrews was second. She got to go. You know, our sport is very cut and dry that way. And so for better, for worse, that's one of the things that I've gotten from our sport is it is and it isn't. And Mm -hmm. the important thing that now in my professional life that I bring and I preach isn't a word I like, but that I preach is, you know, (laughs) you know, the outcome is only matters in that moment and the value is everything that went into it right and i mean i literally talk about that daily right in one way or another um and so you know to sue my gosh of course of course i was sad for her and empathetic around her and and you know her moment passed yep you know and so i i sort of if she had unresolved, uh, you know, feelings about her sport and her accomplishment, a she shouldn't because she's tremendously accomplished, and mm-hmm. she of course got all that any of us got from an amazing swimming career, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I sort of blame President Carter more than I blame her for, <laughs> for any unresolved issues that she may well, have. That is an entirely other topic. But <laughs> <laughs> we, yes, you and I, I can I, talk about that sometime, we, too. We certainly can. Maybe we'll do a part two and talk yeah. about that. Um, but um, so, I mean, the other thing, too, I mean, the fact of the matter was is that you had you had some business to take care of. 1984 in Los Angeles, um, was that kind of a, a, a moment that you mark your life by is it is it was it transformative for you it's transformative for so many people um it was fun there we go i mean it was a ton of fun i was 19 years old it was the early 80s we were in los angeles i mean it was it was a crazy fun time you know um it was all also so new because i was I wasn't really a rookie, but I was, right? So the enti- much of that team, there were a few exceptions, right? Mm-hmm. But I was way one of the younger ones. And many of you were, you know, this was your second, this was your, um, your redemption, this was getting to go again, or people who had been quite good four years before maybe hadn't quite made it, but were committed and right. they, 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 right. were, they were going to make it this time. So I was very aware of the relevance for you all mm-hmm. at that games, you know? Um, but I, I was, I was new to it all and I was just trying to be on the rise. You mm-hmm. know, I wasn't plateaued. I hadn't been there before. I really hadn't, didn't have that many national or international 
um, competitions under my belt. So everything was really new and really fun. And, you know, John, at the end of the day, I'm just little Betsy Mitchell from Marietta, Ohio. Mm. And, the, and, and what that impact on me was was just really proud to represent. And, and because I would go home and I would see how proud they were that someone from our under-the-rock <laughs> little place was really doing it on the world stage. So uh, after the fanfare of your first Olympic Games, you packed up your stuff and headed off to Texas, didn't I did. you? I did. I sure did. I, listen, obviously, this hard work that you talked about paid off. I mean, amazingly, you ended up winning nine national individual championships. Did I? Yeah, you did. Wow, That's cool. according to Wikipedia, well. so it's got to be true. <laughs> of course, I was there for many of them. Yes. Um, as, a, as a team, as Texas women's swimming, you won three out of your three national team championships. Um, and, and just just to put it into perspective, like in program history, there's only been seven. So, so your contribution contributes to nearly half of the legacy of, of Texas. Um, they had to, these, these years had to be hugely influential on you, right? They, they were hugely influential. I will correct you. I was there for five of the seven because I had a red shirt year. Then I won three and I went back <laughs> and I went back for graduate school. So, um, no, I, I, the, the net of that is, um, hugely influential you know this this was the guts of who I was as a swimmer my time at Texas mm -hmm. was absolutely you know using using Mercersburg and LA as sort of the springboard but these this were the guts of it this is my favorite time to talk about because this is when I really asserted myself as the dominant force certainly in in, in backstroke but one of the dominant female swimmers in our country and in the world well, you uh, broke a world record in uh, 1986. 86. And that's, that's the thing that often gets lost for others, never for me, is we want to focus on the Olympics. And for me, I don't at all. I focus on my college swimming mm -hmm. and, and setting the world record, which was, um, which was a world record for either five or six years and an American record for 19 years. So this is my wheelhouse, right, my mm -hmm. college years. Um, the the impact that my coach there had, Richard Quick, rest in peace, um, uh, the impact that he had on me in terms of not just suggesting that I could be good, but demanding that I be good. Mm. And with a mutual respect um, that um, I will remember and be grateful for for, for always. Yeah. Um, he would push, I would push back. He would push again. I would push back again, and we had a great, a great working relationship. Don't you think that that's uh, in many ways a role of a coach to push you further than you'd push yourself? Absolutely. And 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 the trick is, however, right in an individual way, to do so in a positive way, and not and not to fall to the dark side mm. and create other mm. negative behaviors or outcomes. And I think that's something that we're we're losing track of in youth sports today. Um, but but I, I, I you're you're absolutely right. The role of a coach is to to push and to help the person find their own inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's so much about internal versus external um, motivation and reward. All you know, I'm not a psychologist, but this is the nut of it, right? And to do so in a way that remains wholly positive mm -hmm. is is the whole trick. 
Well, you capped off your um, swimming career, collegiate swimming career, with another Olympic team in 1988 and a trip to Seoul. Uh, yeah. How would how did that differ from 84 for you? Very different. Very different. 180 degrees different. You know, I I as I said, I my wheelhouse was my four years at Texas, my three years of collegiate swimming there, our championships. I just wanted to be done. Um, so Seoul was awesome because it was a whole. It wasn't. It wasn't our home country, right? It was so. It was a, a foreign, a foreign country experience. Um, my family was there, um, but I was done. You know, mm-hmm. I was gassed. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't swim that well. I was doing it for others. I felt like I had to. I, I, it wasn't. It wasn't good. You know, I, 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 I had. Um, I volunteered to not be the night swim of the 400 medley relay because I just, I knew somebody was going to go faster than me. Mm. Right. And, and so it was hard. It was great to go again. So right. was great. You right. know, hung out with the right. rowers, did all the things that I didn't, I wanted to do, but it wasn't great for me. Well, um, you know, there's, there's many, many Olympic athletes that I've met throughout the years. And, um, for every one of the glorious, amazing stories, there's a hundred that are a bit lukewarm or worse. Yeah. Because, because especially Americans, if you go to an Olympic or Paralympic Games, you're aspiring to do something other than just get the race done. That's right, for sure. Or get the competition done. For sure. There, it is a... It is a cauldron of emotion, mm-hmm. you know, the Olympic, the Olympic Village. Right. I mean, it's it's every every range of of uh, of emotion. Well, I mean, the, there's also like a I, I call it physics, uh, an element of physics that have to do with mm-hmm. aspiring or shooting mm-hmm. high, mm-hmm. and the higher you aim, when you miss, mm-hmm. the further you fall and the harder you land. Sure. Um, and I think that 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 metaphor is completely appropriate for those that are shooting for things like the Olympic Games. That's where we get the great sports analogies of somebody like Michael Jordan, who will immediately talk to you about the number of game-winning shots he missed Mm -hmm. instead of the game-winning shots that he was given and Mm -hmm. took and made. Mm -hmm. You know, those are, again, John, those are the lessons. That's the enduring value, right? Both on the high and the low. Right. It's not, does Sue Walsh go or not go? It's not, does Betsy Mitchell win or not win? It's what do we take from the experience forward into the rest of life? Because for very few, right, I mean, that's going to happen in the first 25 years of your life. Now, maybe the first 30 years of your life, right? right? And ideally, hopefully, uh, you know, you got another 60 to go. So... And this is why I do this work. This is why mm-hmm. I went into coaching. This is why I wanted to be an athletic director. This is what I try to, to bring every day is that perspective that whether you're, you know, Virginia and win the national championship in men's basketball or, or whether you're Caltech and get to 10 and 15 as our best record ever mm-hmm. um, this past year, those boys are all getting the same thing out of it. Right. You know, when they look back when they're our age, they're getting the same exact thing out of it great times with their friends, mm-hmm. lessons that they brought into their life, grit, perseverance, passion, fun. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that this unique endeavor called American collegiate sports. Right. That's what it delivers to 500,000 lucky kids every year. Wow. Very well said. Yeah. Um, and I, I would, I would, I would, I believe also that that is the foundation of that is in youth sports and teaching 
lessons such as that you've been talking about um, uh, along the way so that they learn how to deal with things like failure? And Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's why the youth sport culture right now um, is, so cha- is so challenged um, because it's this, this intersection of parents' hopes and dreams mm-hmm. and, and, and expectations and living through their kids as opposed to this holy, wholesome, real first-time first time experience for these kids. And, and of course good happens. Of course good happens. Right. But the business model that has driven youth sports in the last 30 years, right, with the explosion of opportunities, right, as, oh, sports are good for kids, great. Oh, girls and women are now playing sports, great. Now it's a business model. And that hasn't necessarily been good for the values that made it a good good business model, (laughs) if I, you know. So, um, but, 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 but unequivocally, the process, the what we put into it is more important than the outcome and what we get out of it, right? Absolutely. And that's just, that's the lesson. That's that's it. That's the whole lesson. That's the whole lesson. I can't agree with you more. And that's what we're here talking about, hopefully, is is how to how to get to, you know, how, how to use your gifts and, and use your aspirations and your dreams to live a happy, fulfilled life, which... I believe you have. Thank you. I'm working at it every day. <laughs> of course, that's that's another lesson we need to learn, right? right? The 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 perseverance. You know, I mean, it's like life is mundane. You know, life of a swimmer of all athletes is really mundane. Right. Well, well, I joke. I, I joke that um, the reason I was a backstroker is because I just couldn't stand. I couldn't stand to be face down. At least I could look at the ceiling or you know count air ducts or right, something. Right. right? But. Right. No, uh, your your point about what we what we take and the 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 grit um, required for just daily life as a non grown up adult <laughs> um, is is important. Well, it is challenging being an athlete and a student. Collegiate athlete, collegiate athletics is very challenging. It so is. that's still the same as when we were there. It is. It is for sure. Mm-hmm. It is for sure. So, um, you know. You, um, you you gave up your swimming career, and, and I think rowing crept into the picture a little bit. And w- so you said you were spent. Um, I'm curious as to why you then transferred your drive and desire and work ethic to another sport, especially another sport that's as grueling as rowing. Sure. Well, I was coaching at, at Dartmouth College. And the rowing coaches said, oh, well, there's great skill transfer from swimming to rowing. Can we teach you how to row? And, you know, I was a 24, 25-year-old person, and um, that feels good. Mm-hmm. You know, and somebody says, hey, you'd be good at this. Mm-hmm. That feels good. Um, and, of course, I wanted a good workout. You know, I had a, my body was about as fit as I've ever been, and I wanted to do something to keep at that. Yeah. And I never intended to compete. You know, it was just something there. It's 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 a very Hanover thing, you know, to do. The Connecticut River is pristine there. It's beautiful. It was this new thing. And honestly, John, what what it was was you have to do it with someone else. So for me, learning to row in a double 
shell. I, I certainly rowed as right. a single rower, but mm-hmm. but a double, or even jumping in with the Dartmouth team in the eights and the fours. I had never experienced literally can't do your sport without someone else. And that was a powerful mm. thing, right? Mm. From being right, right. a very individual sport person and a very I wouldn't call myself a loner by a stretch, but, you know, being very comfortable just in my own skin and reliant mm-hmm. only on myself, right? Um, I, all of a sudden, I can't even carry the boat down to practice. So I have to <laughs> learn to be patient. Like, come on, let's go. It's 4.01. We were supposed to start at 4 o'clock. Let's right, go. Right. Um, which that then has translated into lots of lots of skills for later life that I just wasn't, you know, if it was 401 and nobody else was getting in the pool, it didn't matter to me. But but so this this real teamwork, this collaborative element that rowing brought to me was hugely unique and new and lovely. You know, on a relay, it's four of us, but I'm still just going to go the first 100 yards. Mm-hmm. And some of, I've done all I can really do right. other than stand there and cheer for the other three. Um, and that this was just not that you you're out of sync with somebody you know you're gonna get an oar in your kidney you know mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna fall out of the boat you're you know something bad's gonna happen right. so um, it was awesome to learn a new thing at the peak of my fitness right um, and it's just it's just a beast of a workout I love right. I loved it you know uh-huh. get on the erg and grind all winter long it was right. great well you mentioned that you were at Dartmouth and um, you know so so many athletes me included. Um, turn their back on mm. sports. They just like, I just had enough. Yeah. I needed to reinvent myself. You, however, kind of went in a different direction. You mentioned that you were interested in becoming an educator, but you were the coach. And so you, you, really, um, you really went right back into swimming. What sort of cemented that decision for you? And- you know, I began uh, doing a job search um, before the Olympics, because I, I didn't want to have nothing to do. I didn't want to be someone who lived on glory, or worse, was perceived to live on glory, mm-hmm. right? Whether, However you want to make the semantics of that. I didn't want to have nothing to do. I, I wanted to be purposeful. I wanted to be in my peer cohort. What do you do after college? You go mm-hmm. off and you get a job. So what do I know how to do? I don't know. Swim. My dear right. friend Susan Teeter, who was the coach at Princeton at the time, called and said, they were going to have an opening. Why don't you apply for this job? Wow. And I did, and they took me, and, you know, I couldn't screw it up. They had never won – they had never won a women's swimming meet before <laughs> I got there in 20 years of, you know, women's swimming at Dartmouth. And it took us a couple years, but, you know, we ended up 8-3. and three. Um, And so – It's pretty dang good. It's not bad. You know, we topped out at where Dartmouth was going to take women's swimming. They didn't – feel the need to challenge mm-hmm. Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it was, when I looked at it, where could I do good? You know, where right. could I do, what, what did I know how to do? I assumed I could figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly had it in my mind, very good role models, right. you know, in Richard, in my high school coach, in my YMCA coach from home. Um, and I thought it was a noble, a noble profession. There we know? go. You were six years, I believe, at Dartmouth, six seasons. Um, but then you, you decided to further your education. So why did you decide to kind of like take a, take a breath and, and maybe uh, work on some new skills? Well, honestly, because I had been married and divorced in a very short time. And I was single living in the I Upper Valley. I was living in the Upper Valley. 
And as much as I loved my team and the women on it and, um, you know, why not, I was, I was finding out who I really was, which is a gay woman. And I thought, I can't stay here. There's, there's only 12 people in the entire <laughs> Upper Valley. Like, I have to get out in the world no, more. No, you're, ta- you're, ta- you're talking about Hanover, New Hampshire, yeah, right? Yeah, totally, yes, yes, totally, it's... right? But, um, but no, I mean, I was, I, was coming, I was coming to terms with a lot, right? I was 29 or 30 years old, right? right? Swimming and rowing were really done. I had coached. I had been successful at coaching. I had been unsuccessful at relationships. So I was really digging in mm. to myself mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a young adult. Right. And um, I had had a powerful, powerful mentor in Donna Lopiano, um, who was the athletic director at Texas. Uh-huh. And you know, I, I knew I wanted to be an athletic director. And I knew that I wanted to be able to positively impact more than 20 kids at a time. Right. So you make in-depth... Mm in-depth impact with a, a one team at a time but I thought I'd, I'd like to I'd like to do that on a broader scale and um, I also thought I, I can't possibly spend my whole life recruiting uh-huh. um, which is awesome work and it takes a special person to do it for a long time but I wanted to have a meaningful relationship for me rather than create repetitive relationships with 16 year olds, <laughs> right? Which is what that is. Right. right and right. so I, I was learning, I was really thinking about all that stuff. So I went back to school for a year, right? A lot of what a lot of people, what a lot of people do when they can't figure out what else to do. So you hopped to another Ivy league. Well, I went to Harvard for the, uh, the ed school. Yeah. And, um, I helped with the rowing program there for a year and took classes at Kennedy school and B school. And, um, um, it, it was just awesome. Um, and then I became an athletic director. Wow, yeah. wow! I, I, you know, I've, I've I've heard you talk about how few women there are um, coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the ratio of swim coaches has to be minuscule. Um, but athletic directors, division division whatever, yeah, collegiate athletic directors. What what is the percentage of of women who have chosen that profession? Yeah, um, well, if you're talking about the person in the chair, right, the director, yeah, not associate directors, assistant oh, director. directors, right? The, yeah. the, the director, if you're talking about the chair. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll be close but not accurate. Less than 10% at D1. Um, wow. Less than 15% at D2. Mm-hmm. And 33 or 35% at D3. Um, wow. And the reason I know that is there was a slide out last week. Right. that um, I just happened to... Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a combination of reasons. Um the first is it's still an old boys network that there are a lot of athletic directors who were male coaches of male teams that either got moved on from coaching and just put in the athletic department somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Because they have experience, want to keep working. And, and so there's a big bubble of male coaches who have to go somewhere, right? Right. And, for many, a logical step is in, into administration. That's that's one reason. Um, I, I think another reason is because stereotypically, men will do whatever is required in their primary role for mu- much of the time as right breadwinner for their family in very traditional um, hetero roles of a man and a woman have kids, and the man works and the woman takes care of the kids and. Um, we're still growing out of that model. The world is a lot differently shaped now, mm-hmm. rightly and right and great and, and all good. But we're still moving away from that as the predominant model. 
Um, so women won't necessarily do whatever it takes just to get the chair because they're looking at their lives and they're like, no, I, I have this relationship and I, I have these children and I want m- to do it all. Mm-hmm. And so often, not always, often the perception is, I need to do a little less to do all mm. well. That's certainly a stereotype also, right? But that's also true. I think the other is, is and I, um, what's wrong with not wanting the chair? We assume that everybody should want the presidency or mm. the directorship or the CEO or whatever the one is and the triangle goes out broadly f- below you. What's why do we? Why, I would push on the assumption of why. Why mm-hmm. do we even ask that question? Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, also, it's a very outcome. It's a very outcome-driven role, right? Right. Athletics. Okay, you're supposed to be about winning. Okay, right. great. What women bring to again stereotypically is a process orientation, mm-hmm. and so our world is finally changing to value a process orientation maybe more equally as an, as the outcome orientation, mm-hmm. right? Um, why do we even ask that question? Hmm. You know, like, why don't we say, why aren't there very many male nurses? Why, why aren't there very many male teachers? Mm-hmm. Well, I know what the answer to that is. Well, there's not very much money in it. So it's the reverse of what I've just talked about, oh. right? Like, so the, the heteronormative, right? Men have to make a lot of money to support their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't feel really good if you're a man either. I imagine there's right. pressures that go on with that, right? right. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. I don't hmm. know. Those are my first thoughts. Well, anyway. as, well as okay, you, you talk about your chair. You're you're in the chair here at Caltech. Um, and it, does, is it is it is it uniquely suited for being the advocate that you are for for women and equality in sports um, to be at a place like Caltech? Is that allow you some opportunities to sort of flex different muscles because you don't have to worry about kids going to the pros. You don't have to worry about various elements that I would believe that many of the top tier division one athletic directors have to worry about. Caltech is an awesome place to be exactly because of that. Exactly because of it, because it is absolutely about the educational athletic endeavor. It is about valuing these kids, it is about valuing yeah. the inner athlete, whatever that means for whoever steps in the door. And, and that's, what, that's what I get jazzed about every mm-hmm. day, and, and I hope that our coaching staff is really, is really motivated by, right? Like, it's, it's perfect as the educational athletic model, because that's what D3 is and should be. That's my answer. Well, right? isn't isn't that what st- a student athlete well, should be more like, well, John? That's part two of the of the of the answer, right? So, if I were at Michigan, if I were at Texas, if I were at Stanford, or if I were at Harvard, I would give you the same answer. And so, with all that happens mm. in the landscape, right? I whatever scandal you want to bring up, you want to bring up the admission scandal, you right. want to bring up academic fraud, you want to bring up gigantic facility keep up with the joneses 150 million dollar budgets right whatever the problem is we did that athletic directors did that college presidents did that we allowed our culture to drive that bus and we have Mm. to take it back 
we have to take it back. There's nothing mm. inherently good about giving a 19-year-old nine pairs of football cleats. Nothing inherently good about it. No need. Mm-hmm. No need to do that. The only reason that's happening is so because somebody else is going to do it. Because they're seeing that as an outcome driver. Gear and snacks, right? Kids love gear and snacks. So right. all the escalation that's going on, which is then driving out of whack coaches' salaries and is driving all this competitive pressure, is giving competition a bad name. Back to you win, great, you win. The next moment, it doesn't matter anymore. And everything that goes into it is what does matter. Right. So I'm not saying don't put a quality shoe on a football player, right? Of course. Mm-hmm. Just give him one at a time. He doesn't mm-hmm. need 10 in his locker. And, and so presidents, athletic directors, we have lost our way. And we are allowing the entertainment pressures to drive what should be an educational process. What do you mean the entertainment factors? Oh, well, uh, um, putting sports on TV, putting college sports on TV, or whatever the formats are in mm-hmm, the entertainment right. business that I, you know. But but that start, the, the money that comes to schools is driving the bus instead of the school driving the bus, right? So there's a college basketball game on television every night. Right for 20 weeks of the season. You don't play basketball on Monday night or Tuesday night. You don't play basketball on Thursday night. You could play on Wednesday and Saturday. Not to be a healthy balance between student athletics. Just just pick, right? Everybody has their basing, and then it gets Mm. blown once. Oh, we're going to pay you for that game. Great. Now we'll go anywhere. We'll do anything. We'll Mm -hmm. put the kids on the plane. We'll fly them to anywhere. I don't care if they have school. And... That's a false paradigm. That's a, that's a false promise, right? In school, blend sports, sports right. schedules around school. Mm-hmm. You still play all those games. They can still mean just as much. And, by the way, you don't need all that money. You don't need the, you don't need the revenue from that money if you haven't created this keep-up-with-the-Jones facility war, these coach, outlandish coaches' salaries in, in many cases, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're creating a false paradox. Hmm. Hmm. And it's not a paradox that you, by default, at Caltech are not part of. It's not. Um, I'm, a, I'm a believer that, you know, water finds its own level. This is the right place for me. This is the right place mm-hmm. for me. Um, people ask me all the time, would I want to work at Division One? Right. And the answer is only I would want to work at a place that um, has true integrity around their academic mission and does not want to feed the beast. Wow, yeah. Um, which you have here. Wh- which we do have, which we do have here, which we had at Allegheny, right? Mm-hmm. Which is at play in the vast majority of college and colleges and universities that have student-athletes. You know, there's 500 or 600,000 right. collegiate student-athletes. 500,000 of those 600,000 are are doing it right. 550,000 of them are doing it right. They're going to school. They're having a great academic athletic experience. Mm-hmm. They've got an imbalance. And we're letting, we're letting the monkey drive us to the airport, John. Mm. We just are. Mm. And, and I love football. And I love high-quality um, D1 basketball. Mm-hmm. You know? But we let, it, we let the genie out, and wow. we got to stuff it back in. Because <laughs> you know? what's going to happen is 
either, either, all these kids who are getting all this good stuff out of it, right, the opportunity is going to change and it's going to go away. Or, mm-hmm. right, or we're going to keep driving and it's not sustainable. And then we're going to, none of us are going to have anything. And that would be a shame, not because I wouldn't have a job, mm-hmm. but because I wouldn't have learned what I should have learned through a great college education, you know? And, and, and for a lot of people, it is a tool of access. It is a tool of access to, to a higher education that they, right. wouldn't, they wouldn't get otherwise. So we've just taken our eye off the prize. Right. And, and, and we've, allo- we've allowed the worst of competitive culture to be the driver instead of the best of a, of a competitive mm-hmm. culture. Well, you, you mentioned access, and, and I, 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 I know myself, and it sounds like you as well, I, I realized at a certain point in my swimming career that I was riding a ticket, <laughs> and, and, and you were riding your ticket as well, and you were laying, laying the groundwork for where you are um, right now. Um, Title IX is all about that, <laughs> and it's... Talk a little bit about Title IX, the, 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 of course, the power of Title IX for getting girls and women exposed to and enthusiastic and learning the good lessons of sports. Yep. And, but there's also a flip side to that. For sure. And, and no true um, advocate of Title IX can, can give any voice to tear down others to lift up some. So, you know, the voice that said, you know, uh, you know, well, football will die if we do Title IX, right? No. A, that hasn't happened. No. <laughs> no, you know. Um, but there have been other awful unintended consequences that shouldn't have happened, and it was done in a coward's way. So, you know, the University of T- and I'll, I, I won't be exactly accurate, right? I, 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 I'm trying to be illustrative. I, I won't, I may not, I may mm-hmm. get the numbers wrong, but, um, right. If there's a full complement of women's scholarships at the university of Texas in the day f- for the women's swim team, right. Then there was a reduction on the men's side. So if, if 10 is the magic number for women, then maybe there were eight for men or mm-hmm. seven for men. And, and this mm-hmm. happened all over the country in lots and lots of sports. Right. Um, and that's not right. So, that, again, back to decisions that, in that day, male athletic directors made mm-hmm. about how to bring women's sports into the collegiate frame, um, a lot of it was done really badly and at the cost of men, and that's awful. And no Title IX advocate could say that's great or that was right. the point or that – or yay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's had – terrible effects you know whole programs being dropped numbers of sports being dropped decimating certain sports like men's right. gymnastics and wrestling and men's swimming and a men's lot swimming, of you know, ucla doesn't in a have lot a of places i mean i don't know how many national championships they have but yeah. um so it's it's awful the unintended consequences especially in light of my 10 pairs of shoe example right so you're going to take away three men's swimming scholarships and you're going to give the football team how many pairs of shoes? Well, well, why don't yeah. you just give them one, and then when they wear that one out, you get them another one. You know, and, and I know that you can't, but there might be $50,000 worth of shoes, and that would have been one, more than enough to pay for one male mm-hmm. swimmer. Right? So. How do we fix this? Is there a way to fix this? Yeah. Presidents, presidents have to fix it. Presidents have to fix it. It's not the NC2A? Presidents are the NCAA. Okay. 
the NCAA is a is a membership is a leg, is a legislative governance body made up of one school one vote. Okay. So presidents have that vote. They hide behind um, their athletic directors. They hide behind their fundraising schemes. They hide there in, in many ways. You know, and and the NCAA through its staff, right have been trying to focus presidents on, hey, this is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's some, there's some back and forth there, and there's some finger pointing there, and there's some circular thinking, but the, the presidents and the athletic directors have to want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And I know one thing, John, once ego gets in the way, that's a much tougher fix. Mm-hmm. That's a much tougher fix. Because sure, winning feels good, and of course you play to win. Well, Nobody, you're going to have a hard time telling no, the president of Alabama no, that this... This should be the case, for I, example, I, I, with the football program. I would, I would tell him as sure as you're sitting here. Mm-hmm. Whether he listens is another is another <laughs> whole question, that, right? What, what, it, what, right. what is it? What, it, but, but I'm not wrong, right? You can have both, but they're all going to have to decide. They're going to have to decide together. And right now, what they've decided is, they got this thing called the Power Five, and those are only the schools that matter. And quite frankly, let them go. And my loving, love my alma mater, right? Let them go if they want to be a minor sports academy for a couple of three teams. Great. Maybe that actually is serving those particular students well, but it's not the vast, vast, vast majority mm-hmm. of collegiate student athletes. Right. Let them go. Let them regulate themselves. Let them be the professional minor leagues, have relationships with the pro league. Great. But don't, don't impact the tennis player and the gymnast and the swimmer right. and the, the vast majority of basketball players, right? The vast majority of football players, they know they're never going to play again. It can be a really quality, neat thing. We just have to dial it back in a little bit. We've been talking about balance a little bit. Something has been thrown severely off balance here in 2020, and that is is COVID. It's severely impacted our institutions, all of our schools. Um, how, How are you dealing with that here at Caltech? Well, um... From the beginning, really, you know, almost a year ago, Cal- Caltech is going to obviously lead with science and, and be led by science and take a conservative approach to a global health pandemic. Um, and so we have been impacted in that we have chosen to stay all virtual for our undergraduates. Um, as a research institute, our graduate students are here and working but it is hard and it is impactful on these young people and they crave to be together. And this reinforces for all of us, much yes, much less young people that social belonging is a foundational need, you know, and, and, and shelter and love and food and social belonging are foundational needs. So yes, COVID has wreaked havoc on the development of a generation of young people um, in high school you know, but also these college-age kids who just need to be together. Um, and sports doubles down on that for kids in a way that, that they learn differently than they can learn otherwise. So it's been a shame that we we haven't gotten to have sports or in-person instruction. Well, and, and we all know that you learn better if you're able to interact with others, you know, your cohort, your instructors, Um how do you think it's impacting uh, the, this cur- current generation of college kids? I think that they are quite resilient. I think young people are resilient. But I think through their own force of 
force of will, they are together. Um, they're just not together in ways that we sanction or can help them with, or, you know, they're finding their own way. So in one way, that's really good. They continue to be the generation of rule breakers and, you know, boundary ignorers, and they just do what they want to do. Um, and that, that, that's okay. You know, that's okay. It's, they're also clearly activities that are driving the surge and the COVID response longer than we needed to have it. And that's a real shame. And I think college sports is one of them. Um, and that just breaks my heart, you know, that, that so many schools are placing the commercial aspects of some college sports over the greater good. And uh, it, 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 it's very difficult. As we end football season and start basketball season, it's, it's, it just, it's a little heartbreaking for me. Um, and yet, on it, on it goes. Well, I mean, the, the, there's universities who have canceled programs in the midst of COVID. Cut programs, mm -hmm. or do you mean you're just not playing this year? Because no, no, we have I, a we have a bunch of different things going on, right? We have we have places that have simply said, no, we're not going to do sports this year, and then we have some that say, well, we're not going to do some sports, we're going to do others, and then we have obviously the cowardice of cutting sports because of um, what's happening. Um, and and you know, I I think John and I use the word cowardice there, um, you know precursor right I don't I don't know the situations at those schools I, I, I don't I don't know the situations at those schools I'm not I'm not the leadership there I, I don't know and yet everyone knows that there has been a reset needed in, in and I'll say in division one sports for quite some time and so I think it is a little um, I think it is cowardice to to use a pandemic to make financial decisions that you're more than capable of making any other time. You, you don't need a pandemic to, to do that. Um, to choose to cut some sports while spending the amount of money folks are spending on testing just to play a, a certain number of sports, that wouldn't be a choice I would make. That, that doesn't seem to be a choice that speaks to equity. Um, it doesn't serve the majority um, but the D1 college model doesn't serve the majority. The D1 college model at the moment serves the minority and how decisions get made much of the time. Um, how different do you think Caltech um, athletics will look after um, this is in our rearview mirror? We always prioritize the health and safety of our kids. We make daily decisions about that. Our coaches are aware of that from did you actually sleep last night? Okay, then go sleep instead of train, right? Because the best thing you to whether we have to wear masks a year from now because everyone still isn't vaccinated and we still don't know enough about the long-term effects. So those things will be at play. But will, will the fundamental reason for being change? No. Um, it's important to our students to get to play and practice and compete and learn about themselves and be in social connection with each other. We do so in balance with them as a scholar, a citizen, because this too shall pass. You know, some of us, you and me, are old <laughs> enough to, are old enough to finally have some rearview mirror perspective. <laughs> but this too shall pass. 
Yes, and I think that that is a great place to leave off with the fact that it's, to me, my privilege of being able to compete and the things that we learned and the friends that we made along the way, those are universal lessons that all athletes are able to get from their lives as athletes. And that is exactly the point. That is the balance point. That is the uniqueness of the college athlete, student athlete laboratory, right? When you commercialize it, other things become the drivers. When you professionalize it, other things become the drivers. And for the, co- for the college student athlete, the amateur, as we currently conceive it, the amateur student athlete, it is a place where you do it for love. And you do it for social belonging. And you do it for yourself, but you do it for others. And in those other places that we have allowed it to creep in, in the Olympic movement, in professional sports, in the commercialization of some college sports, that's the difference. And so the pure form is still the pure form. And that's why I, I do what I do. Um, because there's so much power in that. There's so much developmental power in that. You know, John, one of the things that I've been thinking about is I have literally said, as it relates to COVID and college sports, I have literally said before COVID, hey, I get that we're a place on campus that can close the door, turn the key, and walk away. And it's okay. And March 13th last year, I I actually had to do that. And the only thing is that it's not okay. It's not okay because it is so important to young people who see themselves as with an athletic identity. It's just so important to them. So yes, we can walk away, but we shouldn't choose to walk away. And so that's why I'll be standing there waiting to unlock the door and, <laughs> and let them back in. Um, but that, that balance, that perspective, you know, that understanding that, that it, it's so important, but we can pause it. That's also a good life lesson. Well, it's a really good life lesson. I so appreciate your thoughts. Uh, It's like the epitome of balance, the way we started out. Um, So thank you so much, Betsy. Of course. Great to see you. And once this whole COVID thing ends, we'll have to uh, do our annual dinner. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I look forward to giving you a real hug. (laughs) Indeed. Until then. Thanks, John. Thanks, Betsy. Betsy spoke of the lessons learned from basketball legend Michael Jordan, who said, I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Jordan also said this about the essential value of sports and hard work. Champions do not become champions when they win an event, but in the hours, weeks, and months, and years they spend preparing for it. The victorious performance itself is merely a demonstration of their championship character. If you would like to hear more about Betsy's journey in collegiate athletics, visit her website at betsymitchell.us. I'm John Moffat. Thanks for tuning in to Sports Life Balance. And if you like this episode, please share it with a friend and subscribe for more. I'll be back with more stories from athletes in early 2021. Have a joyous and healthy new year, everyone.